Hey everyone, Woach here. I hope you're all staying at home, staying safe. And although we don't have any games to watch right now, we still got plenty of great podcasts to listen to. And one of my favorites is the SVP pod with Scott Van Pelt on his latest episode. SVP is joined by golfer Justin Thomas, who for some reason was not wearing a shirt. You can find the SVP pod wherever you get your podcast. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Vanderbilt coach Jerry Stackhouse, former NBA All-Star, 18 years in the league, with some pretty remarkable stories about playing against the teenage Kobe Bryant with the Sixers. Did we play one-on-one? Yes. Did he consistently beat Jerry Stackhouse at 20 years old and he was 17? Hell no. Playing with an aging Michael Jordan in Washington. It was really challenging to be able to be in a situation with an idol who, at this particular point, I felt like I was a better player. His reputation as the toughest guy in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I I started a few things in the NBA. (laughs) And now what it's like to be a college coach at Vanderbilt. Great visit with Jerry Stackhouse. Stay with us. Welcome into Jerry Stackhouse, the head coach at Vanderbilt and former NBA All-Star, 18 years in the league. Uh, Stack, how are you today in in Nashville? I'm doing well, Woj, man. Appreciate you guys having me on. Um, Just trying to stay safe, practicing the social distancing. I'm really just, just staying home, really. Yeah, I, I'm curious, Stack, you, you finished your first year at Vandy. And, you know, listen, NBA players now are, you know, they scatter, they keep in contact with their team, but they're not necessarily leaning on their head coach for a lot of direction and guidance during that, during the pandemic and the uncertainty and, and, and having to leave campus. What's it like for you at the college level and, and maybe the way those young guys really are looking to you to, to give them some direction right now. Man, it, it really are some like unique and challenging times for, for everyone. You know, you know, our daily lives have really been interrupted in ways that we've, we've never seen. So it's like now we're, uh, those guys, we, we don't really know what to do. We had to just, you know, we were sending them home, just rushing to get them out of here, get them to, to their loved ones, uh, safe back with their families. And now it's like, Okay, we can send you some, some couple workouts. We still want to try to maintain some semblance of trying to improve and get better as as a basketball player and as an athlete. But it's just right now we, we we're just our hands are tied. What what has been your message to your guys right now? Uh, most of them, I uh, I'm sure, are finishing the spring semester at home. Uh, like you said, you can't. You know, even in the NBA, they can send guys equipment and workout equipment and some of those things, and they're shipping it to guys. I don't think you guys can do that kind of thing. Like, what's been your message to to your guys during this time? Well, our, our message was just to kind of continue, you know, the trend that we had to, to end the season. Obviously, we had a tough season for um, you know with some adversity that we hit with injuries and different things, and but I think we really started to trend and got better toward the end of the season. 
and just to make make sure that we you know keep that keep that edge, continue to work at home, uh, work on your bodies. I know you maybe you know a lot of our kids do have access to where they maybe have a court or, or have a gym that they can go and shoot, and just to just to continue that that progression of of getting better because I think that's the that's the key for what we want to do. We have to build from within. I, I don't know how many. You know, we get some four star athletes, but the five star athletes, you know, that have a a three point better GPA and they scored over a thousand on the SAT. You know, there, there are a few out there, but not as many as um, uh, uh, there are that that don't have it. So we have to try to build within, and that's that's the message for our guys to continue to get better. Yeah, I would not have t- take away the basketball lack of basketball ability. I would not have been able to be recruited by Vanderbilt. You just you just laid out those academic parameters that I would not have met. Uh, maybe maybe the three zero. I don't even think I had a thousand on the SAT stack. So come on, whoa! I, I, I don't buy that one, man. Stack. No, this is no, no stack. <laughs> I had I took the SATs twice. I did worse on the second time, and I said, "I'm not taking this thing a third time to go down <laughs> they, again." They're not, supposed to let you, they're not supposed to let you go down, man. You told these to stay where you at or go or get high. Uh, I don't think you. Can go no, down. the math. The, I was more confused. I was more confused on the math the second time, um, but I went to the Vanderbilt of Southwest New York State, St. Bonaventure. So they, I found, uh, yeah, I found a, a place for me. Uh, hey, Stack, when you think about you leave Carolina in '95 to go to the NBA, you get drafted third overall. How different when you think about being recruited in Kinston, North Carolina? And what recruiting was like then, what college basketball was like then, how different of a world is it that you walk back into a year ago when you took the Vandy job? I mean, it is it is completely different um, to a certain extent. I mean, I think for, for me, you know, like you said, growing up in Kinston and, and that, it just, they just became, they bombarded all the college coaches because I was one of the top players coming out of it. Um, you know, out of the, in the country at, at that point. So I was still hearing from everybody. And then I went to Oak Hill for my senior year. So, and that was, I think that had a little bit more resemblance of what it is now for the top kids because they're traveling all around the country, playing in some of the top tournaments, playing against some of the top competitions. Uh, so I did have a little bit of a, a, a look into that, but, you know, you know, obviously the social media and everything that, that, that exists now, so many platforms for guys to um, to 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 have exposure to to see what they're doing. I mean, I think there may have been a chance of some guys being overlooked um, back during that time, but now with so many platforms for guys to to get themselves out there, I just don't think that as many kids fall through the cracks as maybe they did a little further, um, you know, back during during those early ninety days. Yeah, how would have Dean Smith handled like? players commenting on their playing time at Carolina on Twitter and Instagram. How, how would have coach Smith, uh, <laughs> how receptive would he have been to that idea? Oh man. I, I, I can, I can only imagine I you know, he, he was a master of sarcasm. So it was like, I, 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 I could hear him right now. Well, you, you think you need more playing time? I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been watching the film and I, I think you probably need to work a little harder. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I can see that, right? That, that, that wouldn't have went well. <laughs> what, what do you remember about him coming into your house? Uh, a kid in North Carolina who 
I, and I think for people now who don't remember, I mean, Dean was bigger than life. And, 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 it, and it's funny when I say Dean, you know, it's funny, Michael Corrin, who obviously played before you at Carolina, I'll never forget this. And, and whenever I've been around Carolina guys who work in the NBA, uh, number one, I remember I, I was when Michael Corrin was with the Nets and I made, I said, I said Dean to him and he just looked at me and said, it's coach Smith. Right. Right. <laughs> and the other one that I always remember with Carolina guys is we'd be at some scouting event and, uh, you know, Mitch Kubchak would come up to say hello to some front office guy who worked in Carolina and the guy would jump up to his feet and shake his hand because at UNC, that's what Dean Smith taught you guys is when, when an alum comes up to you or a guy who played here, who went here, that you stand up and shake his hand, you greet him. And it's funny to see 30 years later for some of these guys, they still follow, uh, sort of these guidelines he put in place, uh, when they were kids. Yeah, I just think it's about, you know, hierarchy and respect and, and earning your place. And I think it's one, one of the toughest things that you can ever go through is being a freshman at, at North Carolina under the Dean Smith era. Cause it was a, a sense of kind of breaking you down, no matter how good you were or you were the number one player. Um, you know, myself or she Wallace, uh, you know, it didn't matter. You know, Eric Montross, all everybody coming here, you're going to, you're going to take the bags. You're going to do all of the, the lowly things that, you know, upperclassmen, you know, don't have to do. And I think it's, you know, and, and we took that as pride. We didn't take it as really a hazing or anything. It's like, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, had carried this case. You know, James Worthy, you know, did these same things and they were able to accomplish great things at the next level where we were all aspiring to go. So I think from that standpoint, we, we took it as a badge of honor, even though it may have seemed like it was uh, sometimes personal, sometimes uh you know, tough, sometimes hard, but we knew once we were able to get through that, that first year and sometimes it's really the first half of the year because, you know, at the end of the day, coach was smart. Now he wanted to win. So even though we may not have played as much as we might have wanted to at the beginning of that, that freshman year, when it came time to win games around the ACC tournament and going into the NCAA tournaments, um, he, he put the best group out there. And, and a lot of times we were part of that group. Stack, you had, there was like every few years, somebody would come around who was physically similar to Michael Jordan's stature. You were about the same height. Uh, you were a wing player. Uh, Vince Carter had this. You had this. I think others who didn't go to Carolina would, would be anointed with this. Here's the next Jordan. This is the next Jordan. You You were the top high school player in the country. All those things. Do you remember hearing that around you when you came in that you were sort of the next Vince then came after you? You'd hear it about him. It, people were always looking for the next MJ. Uh, and every so often, one of you guys would get anointed that. What, what do you remember about sort of hearing that when you're coming into college? I just thought it was, I mean, it was super flattering for me, right? I mean, I think not only just coming into college, but, you know, that, you know, next Jordan going into the pros as well, you know, and it was just like, it was, it was flattering um, that people could see whatever so aspects of my game or, or the potential in my game to, you know, to feel that I could be in the same sentence with the Michael Jordan. Um, so I think from that point, it was gratifying. And, and then from one on the other half of it, it's like, do these people know I'm a power forward that I never played guard <laughs> before? Right. 
in my life. Even at North Carolina, I was a power forward uh, both both years. I started at the four. It was uh, Jeff McKinnis, Donna Williams, Dante Calabria. I was a four, and Rasheed was a five. So when I stepped, when I got drafted number three by Philadelphia, I never played guard before in my life. I mean, I could handle the ball and get to the basket. So in my mind, I knew that it was. You know, I, I had a long way to go to even become a a guard at the at the next level. You know, a lot of my game was predicated to playing with the ball, um, you know, with my back to the basket up until that point. But because of my first step, you know, people just assumed that I was, you know, I was a wing. But so I, I had to work those first years as a pro just to understand the, the nuances that, uh, you know, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or uh you know, those guys have been guards all of their life. I mean, they grew up handling the ball, you know, and, I, you know, and it was, it was, I remember playing, you know, back when I got drafted in Philadelphia, um, you know, John Lucas would have Kobe Bryant, you know, he would come over and work out with us and, and different things. And this kid was just like unbelievable, just his ball handling ability because he grew up, you know, obviously emulating Michael Jordan, but ball handling and for, for me, it was just a, a different world, learning how to chase off of screens. I was getting killed my first year coming off of uh, pin downs and, and different things just because I hadn't done a, even done a lot of that in North Carolina. It was it was okay. I was three quartering guys. Or I was fronting the post, but I wasn't really chasing guys on the perimeter. So from that standpoint, man, I, I, I kind of I was able to contain it within myself. The Michael Jordan, obviously, it was flattering to go to people, you know, getting signing the big shoe deal and doing all those type of things. I wasn't going to turn those things down, but at the same time I knew that I had, um, you know, I, I had to get better at, at becoming what people projected me to be at that next level. You know, you mentioned Kobe during your early years in Philadelphia and it's funny, things become mythology in retrospect. And the mythology is, that Kobe came in, for, he was at Lower Marion High School, and John Lucas would bring him in to work out with Sixer players. Tom Thibodeau was a young assistant there then, right? Tom, I think Tom was yeah, around, yeah. right? Ron Adams. Yeah. Ron Adams were the coaches. The mythology is that Kobe came in and just wiped the floor with everybody, beat everybody in one-on-one -on -one every single time. That's the mythology of it. What? What what happened when Kobe came in as a I guess a seventeen year old high school senior and was playing with NBA guys? I, what, what happened with Kobe was that nobody really wanted to play with Kobe. You know what I'm saying? I, a lot of the older guys that played. I mean, you spent more times with the LaSalle. I mean, uh, who was it? With L Train that um, Lionel Simmons. Lionel Simmons. Lyman Simmons was, I mean, you used to see him always pulling Kobe to the side, like, man, you got to pass the ball. You got to learn how to do this. So the older guys are from Philly. So, I mean, like these stories kind of take on a life of their own. And, and yes, Kobe had some, some, some good days, uh, you know, scoring the ball because again, he could handle it so well, but it was just, he had tunnel vision, you know, at, at that point. And you, and you would see those guys always pulling them to the side guys when we, you have pickup games. Sometimes he didn't even get picked up. You know, but again, because he's been so great since then, these stories go back of he was, you know, he oh he he beat Stackhouse one on one. He was, he was come on man, at, at me twenty years old. Can you imagine a seventeen year old uh, beating me consistently? I, I'd have heard him first, <laughs> <laughs> like real talk. You know, I was just physically 
that could never happen to me. You know, again, did we play one-on-one? Yes. Did he beat me? Did he maybe win a game? Yes. Did he consistently beat Jerry Stackhouse at 20 years old and he was 17? Hell no. You know, so I'm, I'm putting that where I put the end of that story on the Woj podcast today. But was he super talented and everybody saw great potential in him? Yes, but those, those those scenarios that, you know, that we hear the lore of Kobe Bryant now, you know, they have a little bit of different story when you go to talk to people that was actually in the gym. So you say there would be days he would not get picked. He'd come. What gym were you at? Was it the team's practice facility? This what happened at? Well, uh, there was no had, practice facility then, right? There was just at the Bellevue Sports Center, right. Bellevue, right downtown on Broad Street. Right, right. There are no practice facilities. What am I saying? Right, yeah. exactly. We, had, we used to go up there to to the Bellevue Club. Uh, his guy was uh, Joe. Uh, he actually was uh, our, our strength and conditioning coach, Joe Joe Cabasho or something like mm-hmm. that. And you know, he used to train Kobe. Uh, he used to lift weights and everything. And then we would all come to the to the gym and and play. And a lot of times he was on my team. Right, so it was like all these stories against him playing. And then, and I, but I vividly remember. Uh, you know, the, the old heads from, from Philadelphia, like Sal Thompson and all those guys that played, man. It's like, come on, man. You got, you got, you got to pass the ball. That ain't how you got to play this one. And I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of looking at it. I mean, it was Mark Macon, all these type of guys in the gym, you know. So remember, like, you know, Eddie Jones, all these type of guys in the gym. All the temple guys, all the temple guys. All yeah. the temple guys. But, you know, they act like Kobe was the one that was getting on the court every time before all of these guys. And it's it's amazing to, to hear the, the, the stories. I mean, like he was, you know, super talented. I mean, like Lucas used to have us out there on the track. I mean, every, when I first got there, uh, man, we, were, we we didn't even really touch a basketball. We were out on the track. Lukey was always about being in great condition and we were out running on the track. So we did all these things together. Um, you know, when he was, uh, uh, probably a junior or senior high school. Um, but I mean, you could, you could see his talent, man, just the ability to, to handle the ball. And, and it was really overhandling, saying some of the same challenges that you heard about his, you know, teammates early on in his career with the Lakers, you know, Eddie Jones and, you know, all, um, Nick Van Exel. Talk to those guys about some of the challenges that they had playing with him early on in his career. Those are the same challenges that, you know, we had in that gym at at Bellevue. Stack, I remember covering Kobe's first preseason game. I was working in Fresno, California, then covering Tark. And I think it was his first preseason game. Maybe they had played one in Hawaii, then they came up to Fresno. And Del Harris was the coach, obviously. And I'll never forget this. You know, we were sitting right. I was sitting right by the Laker bench, and I'll never forget Dell Harris just screaming at him, like, you're not in high school anymore. Pass the <laughs> effing ball. You're not in high school anymore. Pass the ball. And that was like his first preseason game. I'll always remember Shocker. that. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Would, how much at that time would Kobe's dad – be around when he'd play Jelly Bean, Joe Jelly Bean Bryant. He played, had a really good NBA career, played at LaSalle. Uh, he was an assistant coach at LaSalle with Speedy Morris at that time. And the thought was maybe Kobe would go to LaSalle, play with his dad for a year if he was going to go to college. Um, how much was Jelly Bean around during that time and sort of shepherding him through playing with you guys? I, I don't really remember him at all. Uh, again, like I said, it was probably uh... – 
you know, until he was like drafted or something that I could really put a face to it. I mean, again, I was not a, uh, he, I was a Dr. J fan, but not to say that I was a huge Sixer fan, you know, growing up. So I didn't really, you know, know about Jelly Bean Brian being on that team or, or anything like that. And I think probably my first visual of him was probably once Kobe had, had gotten drafted. I didn't, I didn't, I don't recall him being kind of overbearing and, and in the, in, in the midst of everything, you know, doing yeah. those work doing those, those those scrimmages and stuff at, at yeah and, and and I don't even mean overbearing I guess in that sense I, I, I what what has really and and I know other people who have known Kobe since those days what's been frustrating to a lot of people disappointing maybe sad is even the word that for all there hasn't been much talk about his parents people saw his parents at the public ceremony but what really was surprising to me was how few people acknowledged them um, publicly. Uh, there was an estrangement there with Kobe and them, certainly. Uh, he was in and out with a, different people during his life. But I, I don't think his parents get enough credit for, especially at that time, th- those early years. And he was a really, and you know this, he was a very polished young person he was mature beyond his years. He certainly knew how to interact really well with older people, which is a pretty good trait, I think, of parents preparing their kids and 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 helping them mature. But but listen, for any seventeen year old to have the confidence to even walk in the gym with you guys, I, I thought said something about his 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 parents. He's smart, really smart, well educated young man. He could have gone, you know. I know he has SATs were through the roof. Like just talked about mine, his were like double that. So. Uh, it's, it's just interesting to me how maybe little talk there's been about his parents and sort of the role they played, uh, up to that point. But, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a little disappointing because again, like I said, that, you know, he had, before he became Kobe Bryant, you know, he was, you know, he was their son and he was a kid that was raised in, you know, different environments, you know, over, overseas, you know, going to school and, um, Italy and learning foreign languages and different things. So, I mean, he was uh, he, he was an unbelievable guy, man, from the standpoint just of his knowledge and, and just his maturity. Um, so it, it is a little disheartening to see that his his, his family, um, you know, again, you know, people people have things that go into every family is dysfunctional to a certain extent. So I think you know, people, people go through different things and different phases. Um, and you know, we kind of heard about the. Um, some of the memorabilia things and everything, but but I think when it really came down, when you lose a lose a, a child, that, that they should have been uh, powdered a little more than they did. So I mean, from that standpoint, that was uh, a little disheartening. But but hopefully they they find some closure with that. Hey guys, there's enough uncertainty to go around right now. Netsuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control with so many critical decisions to make. You need the right numbers. And you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, we give you financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite 
to stay in control. Receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash Woj. Don't wait. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash Woj, W-O-J. Netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash Woj. Stack, when you, listen, every kid who goes to Carolina, Jordan is the pinnacle. He's, every player who plays at Carolina is compared Listen, Michael Jordan's the greatest player ever. So, of course, he's he's the standard at UNC. What was it like you get traded to Washington in 2002, and Michael is in his second second act, really his third act in the NBA. He had left once with Chicago, come back to the Bulls, and now he comes out and plays for the Wizards. What was it like playing with Michael at that point in his career? And you, who were you know really just coming into your prime, and trying to figure out how you balance your role and his role and who he was and where he was in his career. What, when you look back at that, what, what was that like to go through? Uh, well, I'll go back one step before I add on that. I think for most people, again, because of his pro career, but for me going into North Carolina, my favorite player and, and the guy that I wore the number because of was, was James Worthy. You know, again, just being from North Carolina and watching him, his career at North Carolina, even though he wore 52 in North Carolina, he wore 42 for the Lakers. But, it, yeah, you know, uh, Michael Jordan, because of his pro career, became that that standard. And then, you know, I was – I mean, I looked up to him, man. I mean, everything – I wasn't a big Jordans guy. I didn't wear Jordans. But, I mean, I was still a big Michael Jordan fan with the Bulls and just his ability, just mesmerized and had him – um, I heard him speak, and he was as eloquent of a speaker as you would, and thoughtful ever ever heard of. He came back and, and spoke in North Carolina while I was there. So I was, you know, I mean, he was he was up there for me, you know, just on the outside looking in. And um, you know, the first time I played him at, at, at Philadelphia, he had like forty eight through three quarters for me, and then went and sat down on the <laughs> sat down the whole fourth quarter. So. Uh, but at the end, but then he was like, you know, even during that game, he's like, just relax, relax, man. I mean, he know he's seen me play before. He knew everybody just see him for the first time is a little nervous. And the next game, I think the next day we played them in Chicago, and I was more of myself. It was just that first that awe moment of playing Michael Jordan for the first time, and I think so, that so wait, carried he, on for a number of years. So stack, he's putting up forty eight and three quarters on you, and while he's doing it, he's sort of trying to. Hey, take it easy, relax. You look a little overheated out here. Like he's while he's doing that, he's also trying to like, like sort of settle down a Carolina guy out in the court who's who's taking it from him. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I mean, I think for me because I was, you know, I was rushing. I was trying to probably had a couple turnovers, and and it wasn't even so much about what he was doing. Up, he was just as I probably got a, I probably realistically got a probably about fifteen of those uh, forty eight. You know, Vernon Maxwell, I think he had has said something, you know, before that we played that game. So he, he probably caught the brunt of that. But because I was Jerry Stackhouse, the number one, you know, I mean, the number three pick in the draft, that it was just Michael Jordan destroyed me for 48. But I, I didn't even catch most of those if you go back and watch <laughs> but, but I think, yeah, but that's just who he was, you know, just to, just like, okay, this is my, this is my brother. And even though I'm, I'm about to show him something, I'm about to show him what, what's up uh, with, with Michael Jordan, all of the – 
comparisons and, you know, we had played a little one-on-one game and we didn't even keep score, but for somehow out of, out of that one-on-one game that we played, that it came out that I said, Michael Jordan, that I beat Michael Jordan. I never told anybody that I beat Michael Jordan again, even when he came to North Carolina that year, we, we played one-on-one and didn't even keep a score. It wasn't even like, we was like we were going to 10 or anything. We were just playing. Guys, everybody on the sideline watching us. And, I mean, I would have some good moments. He'd had more moments. But, again, that. so I think once somebody put that in print, it was kind of those are the kind of motivational factors that, that he used, right, to, to get up, to get himself up. Uh, you know, the lowly Sixers, who was the number third pick in the draft on a, a, a evening in December, and when he's at the height of his game, what does he what does he need to do to to get up for this game to be able to be who he is and, and who people wants to see? Oh, somebody said Stackhouse said he beat me. Okay, I'm you know Vernon Maxwell, you know popping off at the mouth. Okay, I'm about to go in here and and, and but he didn't just do it to us. He did it to a lot of people. <laughs> right. um, but but I think from that standpoint, going. I, I had a, a reverence from him, and, and honestly, I wish I never played the, in Washington for a number of reasons. I mean, I felt like we were on our way in Detroit before I got traded there, um, but it was just it was it was really challenging to be able to be in a situation with a, a, a idol who, at this particular point, you know, I felt like I was a better player, and you know, and things were still being run through. Michael Jordan, you know, and I think, you know, Doug Collins, I love Doug, but I think he, you know, that was an opportunity for him to make up for some, um, some ill moments that they may have had back in mm-hmm. Chicago. So pretty much everything that, that Michael wanted to do, I mean, we, we got off to a pretty good start. Uh, and then, you know, I was thinking like the way the offense was, 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 was running because it was running a little bit more th- through me. He wanted to get a little more isolations on the post. Of course, so we had more isolations for him on the post, and and it just kind of spiraled, spiraled in a, in a way to where I, I I didn't enjoy that that season at all. Kind of the picture that I had of my mind of you know Michael Jordan and the reverence that I had for him, I lost a little bit of it, you know, during the course of that year, and um, so it was you know it, it wasn't uh, you know, but but again, at the same token, you know, he had a young guard there, you know, Rip Hamilton, who I was traded for to Detroit who, you know, he didn't feel like he could get it done with. So he, you know, like, oh, let's go get Stackhouse. I know he was he's tougher. He could score. Let's go bring him in there. So, but for me, man, we just lost in the second round to Detroit, thought that we were on our, our way. And, you know, here I am, you know, starting. I mean, I'm in a contract year, so I think that has something to do with it. I've been notorious for playing for some of the cheapest owners in the in the, in the league in um, Washington with A. Poland and in Detroit. So, so it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a welcoming, you know, opportunity. But at the same time, I'm like, man, watching, you know, a team that I kind of helped build the foundation for in Detroit go on to win a, a championship a couple of years later. You know, it was it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. So I was pretty pretty happy to get out of uh, Washington and, and get on to Dallas. Stack, people when they talk to you about your NBA career. Like it always inevitably gets back to fights and they want people, people want you to tell them about your favorite fights and like you go on YouTube and, you know, there's an array of not always fights, but skirmishes. Do you remember your career in the way that others seem to, that you were always squaring off 
with somebody or does that feel like it became part of the mythology too? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, again, and, and everything probably is, probably there's a, there's a midpoint in there somewhere. <laughs> and I think for me, uh, it was just about toughness and competing. You know, I didn't, I may not have, uh, the, the, the best crossover in the history of the game and I had the best jump shot, the best post move, but you, you knew that you had to beat me, whether it was, uh, Michael Jordan or it was, uh, Michael Mitchell, you know, you, you're going to have to compete. And I felt like, you know, no matter what, there was going, you had to have a level of toughness. And, and, and I felt like I brought that to every team. And, you know, it was about my team. I didn't, you know, when the rookies came to our team, I don't, don't, and ain't no hobnobbing with your friends because you played with them in college. Talk to them after the game. You know, Mateen Cleese, he still joke with me right now. Like, man, Stack had me hating everybody in the league, you know, just because it's because it's, it's us against them. And I think from from that, you know, I, I didn't back down from 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 any challenges. So so there were some skirmishes from time to time when I felt like guys wasn't about what we were supposed to be, uh, you know, what we were supposed to be about, and that's our team. And when guys stepped outside of that, I would check them. And if there was guys that tried to challenge um, who we were as a team and our toughness, then I would always step up to the challenge for that. So I think there is a, um, but not. I still say all the time. There's not one fight or skirmish that I've been in that I started. <laughs> I, I still, I still hold to that. I mean, I just felt like I, okay, I, I might have decided to finish it, but I did not start it. I, I, that's not who I am. I was raised to, to you know, protect myself and protect my family. But you know, I, I was never an instigator in, in any of those situations in my mind. The the, I think it was two thousand and two thousand five maybe the Kirk Snyder in Utah, which took place really after the game, you waiting outside the locker room. If you tried that later in your career, it was a different world. Even in 2005, like very different suspension, different reaction from the league that you probably would have met. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I started a a few things in the NBA, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? With them cracking down on stuff. One time I got mad in Washington and threw the ball in the stands and they, uh, never really had it been anything from that. Then all of a sudden they start putting a, a, a rule for a fine for throwing the ball in the stands. So I think it's about $30,000. So I was like, I'm glad that they, uh, they, they did that after the fact. And, 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 and the same thing, uh, just, you know, again, Kirk Snyder was uh, nothing like you're off. I'm off. I'm on the offense. And he's on defense again, like just I'm on the weak side. And for some reason, he's just he's just hitting me. What were they just I don't know. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? So I decided I was going to clean it up. We're on the free throw line and we go in for a rebound. And I, you know, I, I hook him, kind of hook him and toss him to the ground. And I'm thinking like it's over with. And now next thing we get into a situation again, here you go. He kind of gives me a little shot to the gut. So I was like, all right, I, I'm not going to get. Because, you know, once you start fighting on the court, that was the number of games. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to outsmart the NBA right here. I'm going to yeah. wait till after the game, and I'm going to get in the tunnel. So as soon as the game is over, I run to the trainer. I'm like, yo, man, give me, you know, give me some sweats. What, what's up? I, I need some sweats right away. You know, so you know, he go give me some sweats, and I, I didn't take a shower or anything. I'm out standing at the tunnel. And as soon as I see him, I fire on him. <laughs> so it's like, and then the next day, I, I see this kid coming into the gym. You know, he's playing with New Orleans. He got traded. And he was just like, 
This was like the next year, right? Yeah, the next year. Yeah. And he literally came up to me and like said, I'm, I'm balling my fist up because I don't know what he walking up, you know, if he's still remembering, you know, what happened in the tunnel. And he just reached his hands out to me. It's like, man, I really needed that. I was going through some tough things. And, you know, that that was an eye opener. And I was like, man, we could have just talked about it, you know, because I wound up missing a game again because uh, Mark Cuban had the, the fo- only footage that they had of that fight was in the arena. And somehow Mark got it and didn't let it go. You know, he didn't send it to the NBA. He didn't send it to anybody. He just kept that. <laughs> so I got suspended within the team and never got any reprimand from the league. See, you you were providing a counseling service around the league. That's what you were really doing. You I were- was. I was. People didn't, didn't, didn't realize that. But uh, but it, it was amazing that this, this kid walked up to me and just like, uh, man, I I was just going through some of all the people on the court that you wanted to decide to go, you know, go through something with and figuring you're going to test yourself. And it, it was me. So um, just just one of those things. Where, again, some some of those stories that, that happen in the NBA that takes on a life of its own. Hey, guys, Scott's turf builder triple action has acquired the secret to building a thicker, greener lawn. In return, they have taken all of the hard work out of the picture to give you more time to do nothing extra. People don't realize that it's easy to get the lawn of their dreams by simply feeding their lawn a few times throughout the year. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action kills weeds, prevents crabgrass, and feeds to build thick green lawns. With Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action, you can finally get the lawn you've always dreamt of. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action will give your yard the nourishment it needs to help your weak, thin lawn recover. When you feed with Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action multiple times throughout the year, your grass will be greener, stronger, and even more resilient. Pick up a bag today. This is a Scott's Yard. Also, Scott's No Quibble Money Back Guarantee states, if you're not satisfied, get your money back. This is a Scott's Yard. Stack, I think it really... I think it was impressive to people and certainly in coaching circles, because you don't always see this with a player of your stature who made the money you made in the NBA, who was an all-star, all the things that you accomplished in 18 years. It's, yeah, like guys go into coaching and they become an assistant coach for an NBA team like you did in Toronto. But then to make the decision to go coach the G League team in Toronto, which means, you know, there's no charter flights. There's no Four Seasons and Ritz Carltons. It's Southwest Connection at 6 a.m. through Midway to get to Sioux Falls or to get to Iowa. What, what, what pulled you in that direction and to say, I'm going to go be a head coach in the G League and try to work my way up in this profession, uh, going that route? Well, I, mean, I think it was, you know, first I got to give, you know, I got to give props to, to Masai. You know, he, he gave me that opportunity in Toronto. I mean, I, I think I was in some conversations, you know, my, my agent, uh, Jeff Swartz had, had talked with a couple of teams about possibly, um, coming on. And, and then I, you know, I started my, my AAU program, you know, I was, and then I took a team over to EuroCamp. They asked me to take an all-star team over to EuroCamp and Masai saw me there. And once we got back, I got a call about possibly coming up 
uh, and interviewing for a job for, for Casey's staff because they wanted to add a former player onto the staff. And uh, I think that was, you know, so like I said, that, that opportunity there, all the uh, teams that I played for, you know, in, on, in the U S I had to go to Canada to get my start. So I just, so it just says how hard it is to kind of break into to that circle. And once I was there, um, it was great. I mean, I learned a lot, you know, I felt like I knew a lot going in, but I learned even more under Casey's, you know, on, on, on Dwayne Casey's staff. And, and I just think it was, you know, again, big personalities sometimes, you know, cause some, some angst for whatever reason. And I think even though, I mean, I love Case. Um, I think he's a great man, but I, I think he felt me there a little bit, you know, and, and so it was, you know, as much as me wanting to, you know, take an opportunity to go to the G League uh, and because and, I knew there was always going to be a question about no no matter what, you know, head coaching experience, no matter if I on uh, as an assistant for however, however long, one of the things that was going to be a knock was the head coaching experience. And then once um, Jesse left, to to go to join the the Lakers staff, I think at the time, and Jesse uh, Mermis, yeah, yeah, Jesse Mermis, it created that opening, and and I would wanted the opening, but I think just as much as I wanted it, you know, it was a little bit of nudge from 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 on that Raptors team that okay, this is a great opportunity for him to get some separation from from this dynamic as well. So it was it, it was a little little weird there. But uh, we made the most of it, and um, I went. You know, so I, I took that step back to take two steps forward because I think we went there and I showed my my chops from from coaching and being able to to manage a team. The G League is great because not only are you able to uh, just do the X's and O's, you have to do everything. You have to do the logistics as far as you know running the team, where we're staying, um, the, the management of with the. You know, interacting with the training staff, interacting. You, you're the boss of everything. So I think that was a great uh, – working alongside Dan Tolzman as well. Dan Dan was unbelievable to work with just to, uh, you know, to his his eye for talent. And, you know, when I, I needed something I felt like I needed on the on the roster, he would go out and, and bring a guy in. And, and man, it, it was like – we had some great synergy there. But, you know, just that experience, again, like I said – Going in and, and being able to make mistakes and, you know, trial and error on, on some things that I like, some things that I didn't like. And, and, and at the end of that, we won a championship. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I was able to, to show that not only were we developing talent, which was the main goal of the, you know, the probably Messiah probably didn't care if we won a game at all, you know, really. But as long as he thought Bruno and those guys that he wanted to feel, um, to eventually fill a role with the, with the uh, with the big club, we're getting better. But at the same time, in my mind, I'm not going to do anything if there's not some winning in it. So you know, I, I, I you know, yeah, we we're going to run the, the the basis of the Raptors plays and what they're doing. But at the same time, we don't have Demar Derozan and we don't have uh, Kyle Lowry. So we got to do some things a little bit different. And in those things that we did different, you know, it it really um, was the how I saw how I thought the game should be played, and I start to see some of those things that we were doing down at the the G League level, trying to translate back up to to the big club. So that was you know, and so I think that was pretty interesting dynamic there to the point to where once uh, 
they made the move from Casey, I was up for the head coaching job with the Raptors. You know, eventually they, they went with, with Nick Nurse, but I thought I had a great interview and I was close, you know, in that job. And I think if I had had as much of a, uh, you know, tenure, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, Masai, that Nick coached Masai. Mm-hmm. Over in England somewhere, so they had a long-standing relationship before that. And knowing knowing Masai the way I know him now, those things went more. No matter how impressive I was, go- I could have been in an interview. The fact that he had that type of rapport and, and history with with Nick, Nick was going to get that job. Stack, you brought up something interesting there about when you were on Case Case's staff and your personality and your presence there. As an assistant coach, uh, you were an assistant there. You were an assistant in Memphis uh, with J.B. Bickerstaff before you left for Vanderbilt. When you look at sort of the context of how you fit into the group and your personality and how you like to do things, are you a better head coach than you are an assistant coach, if that makes sense to me, if that makes sense to you? I I think so. I think so just because I think with any, you know, uh, assistant coaches situation, I feel in, in most cases, I feel like a threat, you know, because uh, again, not just uh, me having to do anything. I mean, when I was, you know, hired, I, um, you know, they wanted me to build uh, some, some rapport with the, with the guys, making sure that, um, um, you know, the front office, you know, Zach, make sure you take these guys out and talk to them and whatnot. And I, you know, I tried to simulate the kind of a little team dinner and have it. And man, that, that didn't sit well with Casey. Right. The fact that I was and this was something that was directed to me from the upstairs to do. Right. And not that it's something that I'm contriving to try to do on my own to build favor with any guys. I already got favor with these guys. These guys watched me play, you know, so I I didn't have to do do those things. I was doing what I was asked to do, but it was felt like it was a a threat that I was maybe coming around trying to. Um, circumvent the cap a little bit. And, and so I think those are, are things that was somewhat, um, I think go that next spot, you know, and, 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 and JB was unbelievable, right? Like I said, I, I don't think he, you know, when I was looking for those jobs after they hired, hired Nick, I got on the phone with, you know, with Rick Carlisle and it was like, you know, man, I, I don't know. I'm looking, I'm interviewing for a couple of head jobs, but that didn't happen. So now it's a you know assistant job, and so it's like, you know, what you got over there? You know, what I'm saying you got a spot over there. He's like, well, you know, let me think about that, you know, a little bit. Let me think about that. So and then it's just okay. It's like again a personality we've had. You know, me and Rick had a couple of little dust ups as a player coach. Now you think about that dynamic as a a coach coaching under him. It's probably something that you just want to. Avoid. Not that he has anything against me personally, and he feels like I could bring something through the coaching staff. But it's just something that you probably uh, would rather not have to deal with if you don't have to. And that's just the the reality of dealing with someone who has a, a strong personality. The way I that because I have strong suggestions, even as an assistant coach, I feel like if I've won enough basketball, I've seen enough basketball where I feel like all right, we probably should try it this way. And that's the difference between being an assistant coach and being a head coach. Assistant coaches, you make the suggestions. Head coaches make makes the decision. So I think that's the um, and, and and I like making the decisions. Was that a a good part of your thinking when Vanderbilt approaches you for that job? Had you even thought about going to college because you were 
you interviewed for the Raptors job. You interviewed for the Knicks head coaching job. Uh, you had been, like you said, you had gone to be a head coach in the G League. Was your thought then, I'm going to just stay in the NBA mix and I'm going to get a chance to be a head coach here? Uh, is, was that your mindset when Vandy called and, and, and then did it change? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I thought I was going to interview for all of the job openings that possibly came open, you know, after the, after that season in Memphis. Um, and, uh, so I, I think from, from that, I just was like, okay, uh, you know, this call come up out of nowhere from college. And I had never really thought about college, really. I mean, a couple of my, my, my guys that were coaching in college, like, man, you, you, you need to come now. You go, you kill college because, you know, the kids already, I mean, you had your AAU teams. You got a lot of the relationships with a lot of these directors from the AAU programs. You know, recruiting could be this and that and the other. And I was like, you know, nah, you know, I'm, just, I'm kind of a pro guy. And I've been in the in the pros so long. I like the fact that, you know, I could go to work for, you know, two to three hours and, and, and all my players, they go home, you know, and I don't have to worry about what they do, you know, for the next, you know, 21 hours of the day. You know, or, or am I going to get a call at night about somebody if, if, you know, you're dealing with a pro player, something bad happens, they're calling Masai. They're not calling right. me. You know, so I think from that standpoint, it was it's more, you know, just more responsibility of, of having to babysit. Not so much. Now, now that I'm in it, I don't feel like that as much because we have great kids and you can go to sleep at night. That's a little bit of the part of being able to, um, you know, get that. You know, th- those mature kids, those kids that have that, you know, that, that thousand SAT score, you know, they, they have a little bit, probably a little bit more discipline than the kid that has, you know, you know 700 or 800. It's just the reality of it. So I think from, from that standpoint, when, when Malcolm called, uh, about possibly coming on and taking this, you know, taking this job, I was like, right, you know, let, let me read up about this a little bit. This is kind of intriguing because I was an assistant coach. And as much as, again, it was cool. JB was cool. I had a great relationship with, with those guys, um, you know, that on, on the bench, JJ Outlaw, uh, who, who was, um, Greg Buckner, Nick Van Exel. I mean, we had a great staff. We enjoyed each other, but at the same time, I felt like, man, this is an opportunity for me to go and put my imprint on a team again, the way I, I had done the prior. It's hard to go from, it was even harder going from those head, couple years head coaching from G League to now come back to being the assistant again, again, just making suggestions again. So the first opportunity that I got to, you know, su- stop suggesting, I jumped at it and, you know, and not really understanding the whole dynamic of it, but I was going to get a chance to teach and coach basketball the way that I, uh, the way that I know how and the way that I feel is the, the best way to play. And so I, you know, I, I, it, it, I couldn't turn it down. How cutthroat have you found the recruiting to be? At that level, I mean, I think it's um, man. You, you've seen this stuff, man. How how the things go down. I think it's just a show that recently came out the scheme, um, and I watched it from you know from the tip to the end, and just and it's amazing, you know what goes on. But it's it's, it's the reality of, of the world that we live in. Um, but you know, I think there there's a number of people that do it right. That, that try to, to go about their business of getting players and recruiting players um, that and without having to, to, to buy players and have to pay players. And so I think, you know, you know, for, for me, uh, we just try to stay above the fray with that, man. We know that it happens, know that it goes on, but, 
you know, for us, we, you know, again, it's a different player. There's a different for, for us. There's a different player that goes to a Kentucky. There's a different player that goes to Vanderbilt. There's a different, you know, there's different type of players. So I think, um, you know, we, we have a, a group. It's a, you know, I can't just walk into the top 100 gym and look at that like, man, that kid right there fits everything that I want, you know, so let's, let, let's go after him hard. No, the first thing I had to figure out is what is this GPA? You know, what is this test score? So all of the guys that do all of these, um, for, you know, they do the, the mock stuff about college. I mean, with high school players that do all these publications and what the ones that resonate more to me is the ones that have a GPA or, or a test score on them. Yeah. You can tell me that a kid can play. I can see that with my own eyes, but can I get him, you know, can I, can, can I get him in the school? Can he go through the admissions department and come here and, and be successful? Not just get him here, but have him come here and, and be successful in the classroom. So I think that takes a different type of kid. So a lot of those, you know, and, and again, man, I, 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 I can't sit here and be hypocritical because I, I really understand that the, the business of, 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 of big time basketball, the business of big time, obviously playing in the pros and how, you know, that, that business has grown and seeing, you know, working with the Players Association and understanding how the business of basketball works. And then you come to the college and you see where, you know, the, the product gets nothing. You know, so so I, I, I'm not going to sit here and be hypocritical and say that I don't think that these kids de- deserve something. But I feel like there's a right way to, to, to go about it. And hopefully we find a better way to to try to figure that out. So everyone's included in this, you know, in, in this big pie. The last thing, Stack, when you look at what the NBA is facing this year and all the contingencies that they're trying to put together to find a way to finish the season, even if it's all in one location, in essentially a bubble or isolation. Uh, you've been through, you went through a couple lockouts as a player, but those were before the beginning of the season. So you end up having shortened seasons that went from start to finish. This is different. This is an interruption that was sort of at the tail end of the season. Uh, what do you imagine how difficult it'll be? How about just injury wise? I talked to a lot of teams and they're concerned about you're not, you're going to have a very limited time to play any regular season games, have a playoffs that's like legitimate and not some farce that, that crowns a champion. How much do you worry about like trying to come back off three months off and have a 10 day training camp or a 12 day or even two week? What, what this might mean for players you know, physically? injuries, all the things that might backfire in trying to slam a ton of stuff into a little short window. Well, I mean, I think it's really difficult, man, because, again, like, you know, it's, it's so – you can get out of shape. You it, Believe me, you can get out of shape in a matter of days, you know, not and, – and it's almost been a couple weeks now, and, uh, and, and people, guys not having the proper equipment at home, and, and which – Again, professional athletes, you feel like they should have something at home to kind of maintain some cardio and stuff. But, but there's nothing like being on the court competing against the best players in the world. You could, you could, you could work out all summer, do all these different things, all these training and thing. And then you go to training camp and you still as sore and cramping and doing everything because it's not against the type of level of competition, um, that you're facing 
again against the best players in the world. So I mean, I, I mean, we we miss basketball. We're jonesing for basketball right now. But at at the end of the day, I, we just it's so much uncertainty out here, and it's so many different you know variables that have to be accounted accounted for. You know, if we go back to playing, you know, this year, um, and I think the injuries is 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 a huge one. So. Um, we, of course, we want to see more basketball, but at the same time, I think that it wouldn't be the worst case scenario to say, let's just have a reset and try to give this thing some more time and, and start the season fresh next year. And absolutely. Stack, thank you for doing this. Good luck to you and the Commodores and, and, uh, best to you and your family staying safe and, and, uh, appreciate you taking time out today for me. I appreciate you guys, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Vanderbilt's head coach, Jerry Stackhouse. Be sure to listen to this and other episodes of the Woj Pod. Wherever you get your pods, you can find new and archived episodes on all the platforms. And be sure, too, to listen to an array of new podcasts that are coming out almost every day. The Low Post with Zach Lowe, The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst. Adam Schefter's podcast, and a host of others at ESPN.com or wherever else you get your pods. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you soon.